I'm Dr. Amy King, otherwise known as Dr. Amy, and this podcast is the most important medicine. If you're a physician or healthcare provider, this podcast is for you. This is where we learn about trauma-informed medicine and ways to build resilience in healthcare organizations. We do this through stories the stories of yours and others, professionals and patients. We listen to each other to transform medicine with compassion and curiosity about what it means to be a trauma-informed practice or provider. Every time you join me, I want you to hear practical information and leave with tangible tools that you can use with patients right away. Today, I am talking with a special guest, Dr. Alicia Morland Kapuya. Alicia is the founder of is the founder and director of McLean Hospital's Institute for Trauma-Informed Systems Change, and she is the author of The Trauma and Racism and Ch Training for Change. I want to say I am especially excited to have Dr. Morland Kapuya here on the podcast because I get to nerd out just a little bit about research and all things trauma-informed. Um, she has an article that came out earlier this year, and as soon as I saw it, I reached out to her and asked her to be on the podcast. I was so thrilled to see this because it's so needed in our field. So welcome, Alicia. Thank you so very much, Dr. Amy. So glad to be here with you today and to share virtual space. Very appreciated. Uh, thank you so much. I'm so excited. Um, what else would you add to your introduction about who you are and what you're doing? I think that's a nice synopsis. Hopefully in our, our conversation today, folks will get to kind of really know that this is um, heart work for me, H-E-A-R-T, uh, and that will definitely shine through in our conversation. So just thank you again for uh, inviting me to, again, be in this space with you today. Yeah. So I want to just dive into some of this work you've been doing um, around how do we know when a system or an organization is trauma-informed. So will you back up for us and just say, what would you say your definition of a trauma-informed organization is? Absolutely. I think that this is actually one of the most important questions. But oftentimes when I ask the question, Dr. Amy, I'll say to folks, what does it mean to be, what is trauma-informed care? Everyone has a, a pretty good idea. It's like, oh yeah, well, we, we certainly want to prevent re-traumatizing those we serve. We certainly want to demonstrate compassion, right, to suffer with others. We certainly want to create an environment that's safe enough for folks to engage. However, the missing piece, right, no true system or person is truly trauma-informed if the focus is only outward. There has to be an inward focus, focus. So just as much as we are concerned about ensuring that we are facilitating healing for those we serve, we also have to be concerned with those we serve with. So that means individual members in the organization, the healers, the servants, those who are doing the work, there has to be an environment of healing that they are working in as well. In other words, the basic frame, and it's really this simple for me, that to the extent that I am working on my own healing and I am putting safety at the center of what I do, it is the extent that I can facilitate that for other folks. And so trauma-informed systems change, it's me, you, it's the front desk staff, it's those we serve, it's those I partner with, and we're making sure that we're creating the conditions, and this is really important, creating the conditions where every single person can feel seen, valued, heard, and respected. And it really sounds simple, but it's not happening enough. It is not happening enough. And, and I'll tell you, I'm sure you experienced this as well, but I can't tell you how often I talk with organizations that say, I think we're 
trauma-informed with our patients, or I think we're trauma-informed, but we're not trauma-informed with each other. We treat each other horribly, or we don't do the inner work. Um, where do you even begin to start with a practice like that or an organization who says, yeah, outwardly facing, we're trauma-informed, but not inwardly? Exactly. So this is, so as simple as this, I ask the question generally, I'll say, how many of you walk into your office and no one greets you? You would be amazed. 60% of folks will say, six out of 10 folks will say, I walk into this office of which I commit 40 to 50 hours a week. Yes. and No one ever greets me to even say, Dr. Amy, how are you really? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because what we already know, and you know, that everyone knows what the literature suggests is that loneliness essentially is a silent killer. Right. And that what all human beings deserve and need and require is to be connected um, and to be understood. And the workplace is one very important place that we can create these conditions. Um, And so it's, it's as simple as that. So I ask questions like, do you speak to each other? Before we even start a meeting, do we pause and maybe do some sort of quiet reflection together? Um, Are we um, able to be curious together, right? Are we asking questions and not making assumptions? Um, And are we able to, I I typically ask folks where we start at the very beginning, and this is some real practical advice. It says, let's just start as simple as this. Before you and I even engage in a conversation about things that we want to change together, Let's think about, number one, not what we don't agree on, but what we do, number one. Number two, can we come up with some, what I call community agreements, things Mm -hmm. that we are here at the end of the day, here's what we can agree to as we engage in this space so that we can do it genuinely. We get to stand on our respective truths, right? But we do that with humility, right? And so I'm able to have a conversation. We're able to set together, we co-construct. It's in the co-construction of these community agreements. We are going to, we understand that one example is breakdowns will result in a breakthrough. We're going to extend grace. We're going to, we recognize that everybody here has something to give. I even ask people, I say things, I want everybody to be just as eager to learn as they are to teach because we have some folks who like to teach, but they don't want to learn, right? So we're like, there's an opportunity for us all here. And so there's a, a list that we generate Um, I'm working with a 19,000 member organization right now, and we are doing this work quite powerfully. We know that there are, there's a scale, right? So you have trauma awareness, and this is work that was done by um, Diane Wagenhalls and her group uh, that that essentially were able to demonstrate that if you have two hours of training, it makes you trauma aware, 12 hours of training makes you trauma informed. But if your whole organization wants to be trauma informed, it's about a year and a half or more. And so there's also the recognition that it takes practice, it takes time, it takes repetition, and it takes intentionality. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are just a few examples. It just makes me laugh when I, when I hear you say it takes a year, a year and a half, because how many times have you been asked by an organization, could you come in and do a trauma informed training for 90 minutes? (laughs) (laughs) Like, well, how are we going to make change? Like you, you might be a little bit more trauma aware than you were 90 minutes ago, but you are not trauma informed. It's, it's a practice, right? Is and it's giving, and this is where it's about inspiring sort of a peer movement model. It is here's where you start, 
and I believe in you so big and I believe in your capacity to do things. Cause see, this is the, the this is the thing we're dealing with smart folks who already know things. And sometimes they just need that little spark. And so it's like, I'll, I'll give the spark and then you light it on fire. I'm going to say, so the 90 minutes is really an introduction and it's an opportunity for you all to think collectively about we actually even start the process in my trainings um, and I do 60 minute trainings for some folks because that's all they can, you know, um, that's all they can really have time for at the beginning. And I'll say, here are some things that I'm going to ask you to start working on intentionally daily, weekly, monthly. So you get to start and then invite me back and we'll do another 60 minutes, but it is, it requires check-in. It's a daily practice. And as new information becomes available, I ask folks to be open. Don't prematurely close the loop on your ability to learn and grow because you deserve that. Say more about breakdowns equal breakthroughs in organizations. Because I, I think that sometimes people are afraid of having the tough conversations about their workplace culture that can could be transformative, but they're so scared to have it. Absolutely. I, I think one of the important pieces, right? I want to know, I kind of, I'm a, I'm a parent, I've got children and I, the way that we manage our household is I'm just as open to learn from my children um, as they learn from me, right? It's like, I have something to learn from everyone. I also know that there are times where there are certain things that are negotiable. It's like, oh, sure, we can negotiate that. And then there are certain things that are just sort of non-negotiable. And in the non-negotiable things, even though my children may not be that happy, they still know at the end of the day that I love them, yes. right? And so it's how do we create dynamics in workspaces? And we're, we don't have to be family, but we do have to demonstrate compassion and respect and dignity where there's a way for us to appreciate the very human phenomenon that nothing, nothing, no growth process ever has come in the absence of disruption. And let me say that another way, that anything that grows mandates disruption. And what can come from that is something so incredibly beautiful. So I give the metaphor of a volcano. Now we know what a volcano is, it's a buildup of carbon, but you know, lots of things have to die first, which is so interesting, right? You get this buildup of the volcano, eventually it explodes, but then there is beauty in the ashes. We get new life, a new ecosystem, new plants, new flowers. And so it is this image that we have to get to this point. Um, and being trauma-informed, because I think people often get this confused, uh, they almost think that it comes in the absence of conflict. No, no, no. It actually is the presence of conflict and leaning in and finding a way forward. Right. So it's because it's this misnomer like, oh, my gosh, you can't have. No, 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 no. If we are going to grow together, we create a comfortable place where everybody feels like, again, you can come and stand on your truth with humility. And we are our, our sole agreement, though, is that we've got to be our trajectory has to be ever upward. We still got to be moving. <laughs> right? um, and so there are going to inherently be breakdowns. Yes. That's a requirement. I love this idea that there's this presence of conflict that must be present to create change. And it's interesting that you use the, the analogy of the volcano, because as you're probably aware, the volcano is erupting in Hawaii right now. And um, I have dear, dear friends that are Hawaiian that I'm like, are you worried? Are you worried about your family that's still back home? And like, what's they're like, 
no, this happens. This is just part of part of change. And so it's such a beautiful example that you just used because the Hawaiian folks are not worried about it. It's, you know, kind of people watching from the outside going, oh, geez, is everything going to be okay? And it's the same thing uh, for trauma-informed systems change. That's awesome. Um, Would you mind just sharing with folks how you got into this work around trauma-informed systems change? Um, And that'll kind of lead us beautifully into your article. And I want to, I want to hear about the, the, the work you've been doing. Absolutely. You know, it's, I'm, I'm going to take us back to, and, and folks are going to, I mean, get ready. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm ready for the quintessential eye rolls. It's okay. I can tolerate it, but I'm going back to the fourth grade. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because I, in the fourth grade, I had a fourth grade teacher named Cheryl Abba and mm-hmm. Mrs. Abba asked us all in the fourth grade, I was eight, and that's a long, been a long time ago, but Miss Ava asked us to, to write these little, do you remember those little spiral bound books? You, you write the books and then you put the little spiral bound. Oh, yes. yes. Okay, so it's like, okay, you have to tell this story. And I, I'm like, okay, I'm going to write. I was a pretty decent writer, not a great artist, but you know, I could do a few things. And so <laughs> I recall in this spiral bound book, um, which I titled, you know, if, if I were able, right. And so I had written things in this book, like, I would help Africa, um, that I would make sure that folks got fed, that, uh, you know, that I would work a job. Now, back then, working a job for me, I said I'd work at Burger King. You know, I didn't really have, I'm like, it's a job, but, you know, but when I, when you look back, it's interesting for me, I had always felt that there was something that, that a part of the human condition that I should be able to help. And I didn't, while I didn't have words for that as an eight-year-old, I'm like, there's something there that I feel like I can help be better and I can do better. Now, as I got older through the process of time and education and those things, I realized that what I was appreciating was suffering and that my real goal as an eight-year-old girl was, I want to reduce human suffering. And I've come to realize and acknowledge that for me, my core mission, and I've called everyone in to join me in that mission is to the extent that we can, we should prevent that which is preventable. And my job is to prevent needless suffering. And it started in the eighth grade. Now, then in, in high school, uh, you know, I was, I, I started to learn and uh, about sort of the neuroscience of fear and trauma. I was such a, a nerd and I, I, I wear that with pride. I love the brain and how it works. And I want to tell everybody else about how it works. And so I started to learn more about that and do research in that area, um, working with the National Science Foundation and some other places. Then I got to college and I met uh, Dr. Maggie Bennington Day. Well, actually, I'd heard of her and um, Dr. Sandra Bloom. And I started wow. to kind of dig in and I'm like, oh, all of the things that I feel like I've been doing all of my life, it actually has a word. It has, it actually has a working body of work and definition. And I understood it very early on to be trauma-informed care. Fast forward to the 2000s when I was in medical school, Dr. Bennington Davis was one of my professors. Uh, I became a, a follower, if you will, of Dr. Bennington Davis and, and, and Dr. Bloom, who was a mentor of hers, which I think is so incredible. <laughs> it's just incredible how the world works. That. that is incredible. Yeah, it's how the world works. And so Maggie introduced me to Sandy and it became we became fast friends. It was like, oh, this is definitely, this is my calling. So now I can 
all of my worlds, right, from this eight-year-old girl in the fourth grade who wants to reduce human suffering, my love for neuroscience, and you all have this body of work that makes sense. Oh, I'm going to put it all together. And we're going to inform systems change. And that's literally where it was born. And what I can tell you is that for me, my core mission is to do good, to serve others and to reduce human suffering. And what I have seen in my lifetime is that when I'm able to share information with folks, and this is the beauty, share it in a place that they can receive it and they can use it, that they are empowered to at least consider the possibility of making one small change. And if that happens for 2 million people, this times 2 million is impactful. So, oh so that is how I ended up doing this work. It's about passion and purpose for me. Um, and, and that's why, you know, I, I can get up every day and still be smiling and like, okay, you bring me your resistance. I'm raising you hope and change. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, do good, serve others, reduce human suffering. Right. I'm so grateful for the fourth grade Alicia right now at this moment, because I read your article and I was like, this is everything. Um, and for folks that listen to me or have worked with me, you know, this is like trauma-informed care and systems changes. My passion, I train healthcare organizations on the daily and we don't have anything like this. I'm looking at Alicia's article for those of you that are are watching on, on, on video later, but for those of you that are just listening, um, I'm gonna just be looking down a little bit because this article is rich and incredible. Um, and the questions that, that you all developed to really reflect on systems change, can you just say a little bit more about how you chose them and how you got into this work? Because I really want people to leave here and, and just feel like this is what I should be using at my organization to assess whether or not we're doing this. Absolutely. So here's what we had recognized very early on. First of all, there are many hands make for light work. That means as many people that can do trauma-informed work, we say yay and yes, and we, we love to see it. And what we recognized very early on is that while there are a lot of folks who are excited about trauma-informed care, they're excited about this idea of psychological, physical safety, they're excited about it, it but when you get down to it um, and you say, okay, this is great, how are you measuring it? And is there an attachment to, is there, is there any clear sort of attachment, if you will, to the cultural, gender, and, um, and historical components, which by the way, was one of the last principles that was added to the trauma-informed framework, right? Mm -hmm. But what we know is that you can't be truly trauma-informed unless the cultural, gender, and historical com components are considered. And so what does that mean and what does it look like? We have thoughtfully interwoven um, the concept of the neurobiology of fear and trauma and the way that I have defined uh, trauma is a fear slash stress response that does not turn off is one. It's not the only, but it's one way to think about the neurobiological underpinnings of trauma. And the reason I say that is because there are multiple trauma types, mm -hmm. but when we get to how, how trauma and stress impacts the brain and the body, that's actually more universal. And it's also more universal about how that trauma and stress impacts organizations. So I was like, let's get to that shared kind of understanding and definition. So that's the spirit that which drove these questions. So it was, we wanted to know not just about you as an individual and your understanding and your role of what it's like to be trauma-informed, 
but does your human resources department like, right. If when folks are coming into the front door and they're being interviewed, what are the questions that are being asked? How are folks approaching them? Do you know, it, it, do folks feel safe and heard and seen or included? Um, how um, are, are, if I'm sending someone to a partner or even my own cultural experience, here's what's interesting. Some folks will say no one has ever asked them um, like if their cultural experience impacts how they show up in their jobs. Ever. Isn't that wild? Isn't Ever. that wild? And the like, questions that you ask around that on this survey, I have to say, hit, I mean, if people aren't able to look back at this and, and reflect, and I want people, I, I hope when people do any kind of assessment, like it's a learning tool, right? Exactly. They look at this and they're like, oh, I am not confident that my organization thoughtfully embraces and celebrates cultural differences. Shoot, everybody in our organization said we strongly disagree. Right. We have to do something differently. Exactly. And notice how it was. At, so you, you said the spirit in which we wanted to have a have you considered moment. And yeah. so we didn't want to ask you if you knew. Notice we were very intentional. We're like, are you confident, mm-hmm. right, about, <laughs> about these things? Yeah. Right. You're either confident or you're not. And it's okay, right? And, it, and, and, it, and we wanted to leave opportunity. There's no judgment. It is if we are trying to do this work sustainably and meaningfully, the way we, so it's a 58 item questionnaire. It's pretty easy to do. Um, it's, you can reliably uh, essentially uh, you know, score it. And I would ask folks to do it pre and post any training. Um, and, and you can assess yourself to say, did I, did I meaningfully make changes in knowledge and attitudes towards this work? And, you know, and there's a six month we're, we're getting ready. Uh, there's a publication coming out for a six month uh, follow-up as well, which we're really excited about, but I'll hold my mule on that one for now. Um, yeah. But, but we, we were, we, we, we spent over a year thinking about how to ask these questions so that they would translate across industry. Because Dr. Amy, as you probably know, because you do this work every day too, and thank goodness that you do, right? It is, you have, you'll have like one-offs, right? You'll have one for education, right? Then you don't have one for the justice system. And it's not as reliable. The gain center even said that, oh, we got this for like the justice system, but we, we haven't really been able to, it's not reliable enough at this point. And so our, our goal was how do we create a survey that translates across industry and even transculturally. So I'll give this quick example. Yeah, please. Our, our curriculum, we trained, um, we, we do two-day workshops in our institute, which drives a lot of this work and drove this current um, publication in the Journal of Public Health on establishing a trauma-informed culturally responsive survey. So essentially we train 54 dignitaries from Angola, Africa in Portuguese. And then we train all in Portuguese and we did our pre and post using that survey that you have in your hand. Cause we also wanted to make it open access. We wanted everyone to have the survey. It's like, this is not, we want everybody to have what we have. Okay. Okay. Full stop. Open access. Everybody listening, open access. There's no reason you shouldn't be looking into your organization. It is free. It is out there. Thanks to Alicia and her colleagues. Um, do pre and post surveys anytime you have someone coming in to do these trainings in your organizations. Okay, sorry. So you no. did this 
Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> no, thank you so much. Because that's the goal too, right? It's about accessibility. We're like, there should be no excuse. You don't have to buy a journal, uh, your publication like we, it is open access for you to use. So thank you for highlighting that, that point um, or emphasizing it. And so we then had, you know, did the pre and post with this group who we taught fully in Portuguese. And we saw that the results were similar to those we did in English, meaning that there were statistically significant increases in knowledge, in attitudes, but also in their confidence that they could take the work and do some, take their knowledge and do something positive with their systems. Now we're talking 30 million folks impacted. So this is the impact, 54 dignitaries trained, 30 plus million folks impacted by policy changes, by practice changes. That, that's the impact that this work has. But we compared the Angolan dignitary group with a group of, of national health service workers from the UK. Okay. Also similar, because again, we're, 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 my question is, does it translate transculturally, not just, not just via, in, not just across industry? And what we found is that it does. Because, the, because trauma is probably the most veiled epidemic that exists out there, but it impacts and it impacts everybody. And so that means that it's every, trauma and healing has to be everybody's business. Mm -hmm. Wow. So I love that you all broke this down into four different domains on your okay. scale. Um, knowledge and attitudes, uh, trauma-informed culturally responsive practices, assessing interactions with clients and assessing safety and acceptance. And I wanna just, first of all, say, if you are considering a trauma-informed you know, training for your organization, or if you think you are a trauma-informed trainer, you should be looking at this. Mm -hmm. And you should, like, I took a, a humble assessment of my own trainings, thanks to this, and I went, Am I teaching folks all of these things when I go in and do trainings, right? Mm -hmm. We have to be willing to do that self-reflection as well. You know, do the things that I say I'm teaching, that I'm embodying, are they reflected in my trainings as well? So it can help somebody who's creating trainings, assessing organizational change, or hiring someone to come in and do this work that's so needed um, that's why I love that this can be just used in, across so many domains. Um, do you want to say anything else about just what y'all found before I ask a, some more questions? Yeah. So it, with the 58 items, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking, Dr. Amy, you and I should just take this show on the road. I'm like, hey, you've said it all. <laughs> this is beautiful. Um, and thank you so much. It's just, uh, you know, you do the work and it's just so you, you, you do it because, you know, we do the work because because we care and that it is even more equally beautiful when you find that it is useful. So thank you so much. Really it means useful. quite yeah. a bit to me for, for you to have me in this space with you today. When we put together these 58 items, right, we were looking, we were looking at, we wanted to make sure that there would be positive correlations, right? So generally when you are validating a scale, there are specific things that end up having to be thrown out Yep. because it's like, there's no correlate. But this is how spot on, and this is why we took such care in thinking about this, because 
uh, Dr. Dumer, future Dr. Dumernay, who's now at the University of Minnesota with Dr. Damon Fair. That's a whole nother story. But at the time, she was a, a, a research associate now in graduate school, just so proud of her work. But she's a co-author and co-creator of the survey with me. One of the things that we sat down and we talked about is we said, okay, we want to make sure that nothing gets thrown out because you have to, there's a whole process of validation. What I am most like what I was most struck by is that out of the 58 items, nothing had to be thrown out. Amazing. That's amazing. So it means that every single aspect, right? Every single question, there is a, a, a very intimate and important relationship. So it just means that it matters. Oh, and that's exactly, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, I was like, so everything that's in this matters. matters. Correct. Yeah. There you go. That's the easy, easy bottom line. That's all I wanted to highlight. Yep. Okay. So can I ask you, I'm going to just pull a couple of items that stood out to me. Yeah. Yeah. And can you help people with either a story or an antidote understand what this might look like in an organization? Um, this was one that came up that I looked at and I was like, yes, this is important. I can understand fear and trauma in a system. Oh, so good. Right. So here's the interesting piece. And, and I think it's so relevant and I'll give, I'll give a story if that's okay. Yeah. So what we knew before the pandemic is that folks were feeling before the pandemic, folks were feeling quite lonely at work. Um, and folks were also feeling like it was difficult to find joy uh, and that because of the pressures for productivity, that there was more of a fear-based kind of leadership, like get it done because it has to be done. And people felt reduced to numbers. And, and at the end of the day, um, when you ask folks, I ask just this one question. I ask folks, has anyone ever asked you what you needed in order to feel safe enough to do your job ever? And Dr. Amy, can you tell me? Well, of, I'm shaking my head. Right, right. Out of 10 people, how many folks do you believe said that they've had that? None. It, darn near it. Yeah. Basically, nine, nine out of 10 folks say, I have never had anyone ask me that. But here's the thing. What you and I know from a, just a human behavioral perspective is that safety is a requirement in order for us to be creative, to do our jobs, to tap into the top part of our brain and to, to, to be cognitively present. Um, and so that question became so incredibly important because we're saying, okay, I'm, let's move away from just trauma for a minute. And let's just talk about the emotion of fear and how that has operated in every single system. In my book, The Trauma of Racism, the subtitle is, exploring the systems and people fear build. And I talk about from the very founding of our country, even the framers of our country, they, yes, they later came with their greatest hopes, but Dr. Amy, they built our country in the constitution based on their greatest fears. <laughs> Oligarchy, you know, um, they, they moving away from, you know, from, from the crown. I mean, it was, and so you think about how every system, essentially, if you pause and think about it, fear can be identified. And we're saying, ah, that's an important exercise to just be aware of. Yes. How does it show up? What are people not saying to you because mm -hmm. they're afraid? Mm -hmm. What processes don't get changed for the better because people are afraid? Yeah, and, yes. yeah. and so it's a, it's a way to, to cause people to pause and to think about, are we creating environments of hope and joy? 
or are we being completely led by fear here? Well, I think about the last three years of COVID, right? Where, you know, as you know, providers are burned out, people are leaving healthcare systems at astronomical rates. And one, one of the things that I'm often saying to people is how are we balancing the, the loss and the overwhelm with joy and purpose and meaning. And it's hard. It's so hard in, in those moments where folks are short staffed and, you know, they're telling people you can't take your vacations. You can't take your medical leave because we need you. And we have these systems of, you know, kind of performative cultures. And then we don't have a balance and it's all based out of fear. Exactly. Exactly. And I can tell you that when folks feel like, for instance, okay, I'm, okay, I'm going to give one other example, Dr. Amy, because it's just yeah. coming to me. So to be a trauma-informed organization, and, and Dr. Bloom will say this, and Dr. Maggie will say this too, Bennington Davis, that is, that you have to be a feeling organization. And so I have often said that systems change when people change, and people change when they feel something. Now, what you and I know is that the it, it is it has traditionally been antithetical to being a professional to feel, right? To feel is like, oh my gosh, that's not professional. However, what I have been saying to folks, which it shouldn't be radical reorientation or radical reframing, but it kind of is, unfortunately or fortunately, it's that organizations of the 21st and 22nd century have to be feeling organizations because in this great reevaluation, I've moved away from the resignation, it's the great reevaluation. Folks have essentially are saying the workforce, under, underscore force, has said that the workplace has to be a place that considers them the whole of who they are. They want to know that you care about me. Please show me that you care about my existence. And what we know is that when folks feel valued and when they feel cared about, they stick around, even for the hard stuff. Even for the absolutely. And the people that I'm listening to on this podcast and every training that I do who are leaving is because there is a lack of human beingness. That's right. Lack of connection. So um okay, I could ask a lot more questions. I'm trying to be cognizant of our time. Oh no. We said we were going to have a good conversation. It looks like we've so accomplished good. So good. Um, I want to talk about this section on the cultural um, humility piece, the cultural competency piece. There are several questions when folks look on this survey that they will see um, reflecting whether or not your organization looks at cultural differences and embraces culture as part of the organization. So before Alicia and I started recording today, I was asking her just her her thoughts around trauma-informed work and DEI work and the intersections of cultural competency. And this, this assessment tool so beautifully weaves in what is an important fabric of any training. So will you just talk a little bit more about kind of, I don't know if I'm even using the right words, how you... Um, create priority around um, the cultural piece in here that is which trauma-informed work and how do we think about that? Absolutely. And I think this is such an important question, 
as I said, I am a member, uh, actually a board member for the Campaign for Trauma-Informed Policy and Practice, of which Dr. Sandra Bloom, see, I can't get away from that name. She's just <laughs> such an important person in this space, is the chair. And we wrote this, I wrote, co-authored this blog with one of my fellow members. And the title of it was, To Be Trauma-Informed is to Be Anti-Racist. And I know it was like all this kerfuffle, but here's what I was saying, and I, I stick to it. It is that if we think about what it actually means, if you think about the full of the principles of what it means to be trauma-informed, one of the last that was added, but actually the most important was the consideration of cultural, gender, and historical factors. And what does that mean? It essentially is a recognition that historically and chronically marginalized populations have to be considered because they have spent so much time feeling unsafe. And if our goal is to create an environment of safety, it means safety for all, in all context, which means that we have to ask about it. And so the way that I start the conversation and have started the conversation around this, which is, which is really disarming, is to essentially say, can you imagine what it is like to spend a good portion of your life looking over your shoulder, afraid, you can't be safe in a Starbucks, in a park, in a church, in your own apartment, at your workplace, right? I can give you every single context of which some chronically or you know historically marginalized populations have not been able to feel safe. And we know that none of us, right, were designed to be chronically stressed or afraid. Now, most people can get this because they're like, wait a minute, I know what it's like to be afraid. It really doesn't feel good. Now I want you to imagine that 24-7, 365, and if you think that's manageable. And then I attach that, Dr. Amy, to my, to my call to our shared humanity to say a part of our responsibility is to prevent that which is preventable and to reduce needless suffering. Discrimination and racism are forms of preventable, needless suffering. And from that particular frame, we're then able to ask very specific questions, right, about an organization's responsibility to keep every single member safe and to keep safety at the forefront of the work that is done. And so it's that it's it's that um, space that allows folks to engage and to say, okay, now we can get creative around that. Right around with this. And the beautiful thing is when I ask the question about what you need to be safe, I don't have to make assumptions. You tell me what you need. And then we co-construct a process together that creates the environments, catch this, that we all deserve to be able to work in. Oh my gosh. Can I, can I just say what that, that there's so much you're saying right now that's so rich and important to me, but what you just said about safety so often people say, how do you make someone else feel safe? And I said, Ask them. Yes. Ask. Right. Right. Um, the other thing that I just want to underscore what you're saying in this assessment, and if people really take this as a genuine reflective exercise for themselves, that it is a core assumption that we will include aspects of culture into what is trauma informed, or you're not doing the work. There you go. Listen, I'm just going to hop and highlight. Boom, boom. Yes. Come on, Dr. Amy. Come yes. on. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's just, it's everything. So um, I want to just, before I, I do some rapid fire, um, 
Uh, I just want to, again, underscore to everyone, this is open access. Everybody who's doing trauma-informed work, every organization who is hiring someone, every person who is reflecting on whether or not I'm training people to be trauma-informed should be doing a, a reflective exercise and then a pre-post survey. It's out there. Can we use it now? You said you're, yeah. you're updating yeah, you six months. It's free to, yeah, it's free to use. We are adding just a, there's a, because, right, these are kind of uh, primary and secondary outcomes that we were able to demonstrate consistently, again, across multiple groups, which I'm so it's just so powerful. Right. And I've been doing this work for 19 years and I've been letting everybody else do the assessment. But then I said, you know what, let me just hop into the space and do my own. Right. This is, this is, you know, um, and so we, we, we also believe that there's a, the tertiary outcome, which is even more important is after you're, you've increased knowledge after you have, you know, had said you had more confidence, did you do something different? So we've got the six month data, like, you know, that folk and that demonstrate that folks have taken what they've learned and they have changed things, which that's the important thing. So we've our second, this second publication that's coming out from the Institute itself, which is a spinoff of this, will demonstrate how effective the curriculum is, but also the survey. Um, so we are just just we are really excited about being able to contribute to this space so meaningfully. I love it. So it, we will link up to Dr. Bloom's work, Dr. Bennington Davis's work. We'll link up to the survey. Um, we'll put all of that in the show notes. Um, it also sounds like as a side note, it would be amazing to have a conversation with the now Dr. Uh, DeMornay. Yeah, DeMornay. Yes. Oh, she's incredible. Yeah. She's, incredible. she's at the University of Minnesota um, working. And I mean, she is, um, yeah, I, I, I would encourage it for sure. Doing the good work too. Okay. Um, here's our, our rapid fire, if you will. Um, what is one thing that folks are getting wrong about trauma-informed work? Oh, I'm going to do a little health, a little friendly reframe. I would say so, an area that I would want folks to be more curious about. Awesome. And that is, that is um, how, how universal this is and that trauma-informed work should actually be a universal precaution. And yes. if we have it as a universal precaution, I think the world would be, I know <laughs> I'm going to do my, in my Oprah moment, when I know for sure, I know the world would be a better place. I, I 100% agree with you. 100%. Um, this, this is so easy to circle back to because you, you told such a beautiful story, but if you could go back and talk to young Alicia, what would you tell her? Oh goodness. So many things. <laughs> well, one would just be like, Oh my goodness. You know, there are just certain things that like the universe and the spirit, I call it God gives. And I would just rest assured that, uh, I would tell my eight-year-old self that, um, everything that I felt back then, it meant something, um, that, that it, it, it was a, it was a brewing for, 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 for greater good. Um, and just to rest in that. Cause there were moments where I'm like, should I be thinking this deeply about I'm eight, <laughs> um, but, but I, but I, but now I, in retrospect, I realize that again, there are just certain things that are put in you that you're 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 destined to do, and and it's a part of your fate. And so that's what I would just I would say: just be secure in the fact that you're you're exactly where you're supposed to be at this moment. Oh my gosh, could don't I wish we could just tell all little <laughs> old selves that? But you were like you were in fourth grade doing social justice work. You were like creating a foundation. Um, I just love it. Um, 
I think often in healthcare, people get intimidated by professionals. And I, I'm sure people listening to you today are like, oh my gosh, her mind is so beautiful and articulate. And um, will you share with our listeners, what's one thing that makes you a perfectly imperfect human being? Ooh, everything, Dr. Amy, and I'm not afraid to say it, okay, because a part of the reason, and and this is the thing, like, you know, people talk oftentimes about success, and I've moved, I've, I've since really shifted away from this idea of success, and I really tend to lean more into the concept of mastery. And in, in mastery itself, it is the recognition that in order for me to hit the mark, I have often missed it. Um, and that means that it, there's a continuum, right? It is, I am, I'm, I'm learning and unlearning and relearning. I'm open to new information. And there are just things that I just don't know. And I'm okay with not knowing that here's what, here's what's sort of like my superpower. People will ask me things and I'm like, I don't really know, right? Today, but I can know tomorrow, right? Yeah. So, yeah. and so I'm okay. And, and I don't have, you know, in this healing space, I, it doesn't mean that I've been unscathed. Um, it doesn't mean that I haven't had my own wounds or scars that have come from the process of, of supporting and helping. And it really is the recognition of my own humanity, vulnerability and brokenness, which by the way, I think there's functionality in the brokenness, um, that I've been able to give so genuinely, right. Don't put me on a pedestal. Don't make me, I'm human, just like everybody else. Um, and in, in, because I'm human, I know that I can call on other humans to do exactly what I'm doing. Everybody can do it. It's like, we may not do the same thing, but everybody has an opportunity to serve from where they are. And that's what I encourage. We all have something to give. And it's about ownership. If you take 0.005% and I take 1%, it's okay. Let's all take ownership in what we can do on this earth together uh, to create the conditions for healing and safety and belonging. And that's really it. But I'm far from perfect. Honey, far from it. Far from it. (laughs) Same. I I do love, and and I I didn't have this question written down, but I do love you are a very hopeful, positive person. And you said it a little, you know, maybe halfway through our interview, I match, I can't remember exactly your skepticism with... What did yes. you say? I said, look, you bring your resistance, which is yes. grist for the meal. You bring your resistance and I'm going to raise you hope and change. Yes. I do believe. I believe. And I've been, like I said, I mean, I've had, a, I know folks make assumptions about, you know, how old folks are and things like that. We don't have to get into that, but I'm like, I'm old enough to know. I really am <laughs> that, uh, that it's the one thing. Hope is the one thing that I personally cannot afford to abandon. And in this work, I have seen so many people, so many organizations heal. And that, Dr. Amy, is the great promise, is that just like people, organizations can heal. I've seen it. And so I'm not, so I'm, I'm, I'm continuing to show up, roll up my sleeves and to do the work because I believe in, I believe in, uh, I believe in humanity. I believe in the work. Um, and, and I believe in you and me, right? Cause we're doing this, right? So that's right. And if we can do it, other people can do it. Absolutely. 100% agree. Okay. Uh, last question. It's 11 o'clock at night yes. and you have a food craving. What, <laughs> what do you reach for? <laughs> Some Ben and Jerry's peanut butter cup. And, and sadly, but also, I mean, no shame. Cause there's no judgment here. I will eat the whole pint. It's so good. Oh, there's I no know. judgment there. there- 
There is no judgment there. And can I just tell you from my own small research study, we could fuel doctors on Ben and Jerry's popcorn and whiskey. Because <laughs> I ask all of you, like, what, what, what do you reach for at 11 o'clock at night? I'm telling you, Ben and Jerry's popcorn and whiskey is fueling our system. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I want to just take a moment. Um, we'll link up to all of your important work. Thank you for giving words and meaning to the work so many of us are doing. You are beyond what I could have imagined speaking to today, inspiring and brilliant and justice oriented. And thank you for doing this work. Thank you for putting stuff into the community so that everyone can access what is, I think, the most important medicine that we can be. So thank you. And thank you for being with me today. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Right back at you. Thank you. Um, from one, from one healer to another. Thank you. Well, that's it, friends. If you like what you're hearing in this space, I invite you to join us in the Provider Lounge, a learning collaborative to build resilience. It's an incredible group of physicians who meet monthly, get CME, and lean into conversations about trauma, resilience, and other tough topics. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you and keep sharing your own because your humanity will heal others. We'll talk soon.